Good morning and welcome to SOAS Radio. I'm Helen and joining me today is Daniel Raven Ellison, a SOAS alumnus who's running a campaign which aims to make Greater London the world's first national park city. Good morning, Dan. Hi, how are you doing? Well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good, good, good. Thank you so much for coming into the studio today. So a national park city may sound like a contradiction to many, and I think that it takes some imagination to think in these terms. So how did you first come across the concept? So like many of us, I love national parks. They're one of humanity's best ideas to protect some of the world's most critical habitats. But I'm interested in urban exploration as well. And I started a project back in 2008 called Urban Earth which is all about walking across entire cities. So Mexico City, Mumbai, London. But what I do is use social mapping to map out, say, the distribution of deprivation within an urban area. And then I'd walk across the entire city, taking a route that reflected the distribution of that deprivation. So for example, if the poorest fifth of people only occupied 1% of space, then only 1% of my walk would go through that area. So I'm interested in how we think about cities and how we think about places and how we can explore them in creative ways. And then a couple of years ago, I was very lucky and privileged to visit all 15 of the UK's inspirational, distinctive, inspiring, important national parks within a very compressed period of time, about six months. And it was during that journey that um, I realised that something, maybe something was missing. And that's that 7% of the United Kingdom and 10% of England is urban habitat. An urban habitat can be more ecologically diverse, more ecologically valuable, just as awesome for adventure and recreation, far more accessible and inclusive for those things actually than very large parts of the countryside. So I began to wonder why it was that a city wasn't represented within our family of national parks. And actually, I think it's just prejudicial against our own habitat. How are you hoping to change that prejudice and change the way that we think about cities as habitats? Well, I don't think it's actually a massive leap for people to make if you live in a city like London or many other cities in Britain, because actually they're very green cities. We have a very long tradition in London dating back 2,000 years of enclosing, protecting, celebrating, enjoying our green spaces. So in London, there are 13,000 species of wildlife as well as our own species. London is the most ecologically diverse region of the UK, according to the London Wildlife Trust. So actually the idea of being alongside wildlife is something that's quite familiar to people. Just the intellectual leap around the idea of a national park city to make is that a city is a habitat that's just as valid and just as important as wetlands or mountains, just distinctly different. And how would the National Park City label legally work to protect those green spaces that we have? So a distinguishing point about the idea of a national park city is that it wouldn't be classified in the same way as the current rural national parks. So I met with the, the Chiefs of National Parks England on this idea, and you know we agreed that if we tried to call London a natural national park, not only would that be offensive to rural national parks and really confuse the public maybe about what a national park is in terms of the importance of protected rural and wilder areas, but it would also just be impossible to push through legislation, and there'd be all kinds of baggage involved in terms of the powers that it may have, in terms of its legal powers. So we really agreed that the idea of a national park city was a great way to go because it's something that we can define for ourselves, we can create for ourselves, it can sit outside legislation rather than designated by Natural England who designates national parks in, in England. It can be declared by the public, which is a very different approach, far more grassroots and community based. And so what this does is it not only questions the very nature of what a city is, 
and what a city is for and what a national park is and what a national park is for, it also gets us thinking about the very nature of power and authority. So around the world, about half of national parks are failing. And you know, evidence of that is, for example, the, the massacre of pangolins, the decline of elephants on a you know, massive scale, um, massive decline of shark populations in our oceans. And it's not because many of these species aren't protected or there aren't protected areas. Um, the law is in place. The issue is that there isn't the right values, investment, culture, um, restrictions around supply and demand around wildlife to actually um, protect wildlife and habitats. So if we want to protect a cities like, like London's green spaces and actually make the majority of London physically green, that's primarily about education, awareness and values, rather than thinking about the laws, which in London specifically have already been in place for many years in many cases. It's just those laws are being infringed upon. So National Park City is far more about what individual people can do rather than what the government can do for us. As you say, there is such a culture of protecting our green spaces already and many individuals across London are already doing a lot within those green spaces to experiment with uh, green farming practices and urban greening projects. And so how would the National Park City kind of amplify those experiments and spread them throughout the city? You know, this isn't really a radical idea. (laughs) Isn't it? (laughs) Well, it's not because... Like I say, you know, there's there's a yew tree that's been protected up in Totteridge in the far north of London, in High Barnet, that's 2,000 years old. So that yew tree was poking its head out of the earth at the same time that the Romans were landing and starting to enclose and protect land around Greenwich, which is, you know, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. People have been doing this stuff, millions of people have been doing this stuff for 2,000 years in this city, from food growing to looking after wildflowers to bringing back exotic plants from all around the world to Kew and to Temple and different places. This isn't a new idea. What's new about this is literally the lens through which we think about the city and the scale of the proposition. So specifically, um, I met with the Southwest London Environmental Network. They do fantastic work down in Southwest London. And there's, they're like, you know, what will this do for us? Well, do you know what? It might increase the number of volunteers working for them and the diversity and age of the people working for them. It might bring in more funding as well. But actually, for them, if you look at a map of conservation in terms of wildlife recordings, Southwest London around Richmond and Kingston is fantastic. But if you go up to northeast London towards Redbridge and Havering, it, you know, there's hardly anything going on at all in terms of wildlife recording. There's some, but hardly any. So can we spread that practice? Yeah, we most certainly can. If you go to Daubeny Fields and Hackney, it's a, a typical London housing estate. But what's different about it is that the same gardener has had the same contract there for 10 years. And as a result, what would otherwise probably be amenity land for just dogs to shit on, which is like what a lot of the green space in London is like around social housing. Instead, there's bee hotels, there's orchards, there's wildflower meadows, there's places for children to play outside. And if that thinking that's worked so well in Daubeny Fields and Hackney was spread to other areas of housing across the capital, that could really revolutionise how much not only the quality of green space available to people, but also how much people feel that they have a sense of ownership over it to look after that space as well. So I think that the point is that actually we have all the intellectual capital, we have all the awareness and the ideas within the city, but we can scale it. And that's what the National Park City can do. And I guess a National Park City is also so much about the way that we interact with our green spaces and how often we interact with our green spaces. Do you think that people are valuing green spaces enough now or do you think that this would 
would improve their awareness of the park around the corner and what they're doing and improve their willingness to participate in those uh, projects. You know, our, our lived experience of the city is predominantly urban because we walk from the tube station down the street to our house. Um, sometimes we break that and go into green spaces, but for a lot of people, um, about 90% of people in some boroughs don't typically go to a park in the average week or don't walk through parks, 90%. So they have this very urban vision of the city. The reality is that 47% of London is physically green. Um, 40%, about 40% is open space that people can access. 60% of London is open space, including the rivers, you know, the watercourses as well. So actually London, compared to many cities around the world, is very sparsely populated for its size. But if we think specifically about children, I went on a walk from Kingswood in Croydon up to High Barnet, staying as much as I could within London's woodlands, London's world's largest urban forest. And going through the woodlands, I saw fox, deer, feisty rats. I saw um, lots of pigeons. I love pigeons. I saw, um, <laughs> I saw snakes. I saw um, woodpeckers, all kinds of wildlife. But I did not see or hear a single child. And it was a Friday of a school holiday. One in seven London parents hasn't taken their child to a park or green space at all in the last year. My son managed to go through the first year of secondary school without doing one lesson outdoors, even though his school is right next door to a nature reserve. Uh, last weekend, um, I decided to test this more deeply and went to Beckenham Place Park, a park in southeast London, which is by a housing estate that has one of the largest numbers of children in London in it. And yes, there was lots of children playing on some horrible metal swings, <laughs> but no children between the ages of 10 and 18 were in the park, at, in, in, the, in the woods at all playing. None. Um, none with their parents, none on their own. And below the age of 10, throughout the whole day that I was there, I saw eight children below the age of 10, all with their parents, all of which also had dogs. So there's some really weird thing going on where we know we need to walk a dog twice a day, but we let our children go obese and you know, store up risks for their future. And in terms, of their, in terms of their values, and in terms of their understanding, in terms of the development of their brains, because, because we fear risks that are largely not there. And it's very sad. So yeah, we don't use our parks and green spaces nearly enough. That's really shocking. And we're hearing a lot in the news at the moment about these grand green infrastructure projects such as the Garden Bridge. And I was just wondering how you thought that the National Park City would kind of layer over these and, and add to them or whether you think that, in fact, we should prioritise projects like the National Park City over the huge costs of building a, a garden bridge. It's a really challenging thing here, isn't there, around what attracts investment and how you get stuff done. So there's a project that's underway at the moment called the Thames Tideway Tunnel, which is going to go all the way along underneath the Thames from Hounslow, all the way sort of coming out, I think, towards sort of Essex. And it's going to take, you know, loads and loads and loads of human feces and, you know, used tampons and all the stuff that goes into the sewage system out of the River Thames, which is going to be fantastic for wildlife. And it's going to be fantastic for people who want to swim in the Thames. Now, the ideal thing would be that there'd be a way of upgrading that infrastructure through sustainable urban drainage systems in a way that people will invest in those and they'll work. But the pragmatist in me knows that actually the Thames Highway Tunnel is what people invest in and it's going to fix a really big problem. And hopefully then over the next 100 years, because of greater awareness of the importance of green infrastructure, actually over the next 100 years, we will start to retrofit the city as new buildings go in. So that's the optimism looking back. The Garden Bridge, on the other hand, 
you know, you can go to parks in Tower Hamlets where children haven't even been on an escalator and their local park is under threat because the council can't afford to look after their local not particularly good park. And yet there's this idea of building this Dubai, Las Vegas style, mythical, you know, should not be there piece of green across the river, which doesn't even connect any green to green. So it's not really a proper green corridor. If it was further east or further west, it might do that job. But instead, it's in the middle of London. And maybe if it was entirely privately funded, I'd feel better about it. But when Kew Gardens, a World Heritage Site, is under threat, and some of our 3,000 parks are under threat, and councils can't look, look after them, the idea that the taxpayers are going to pay millions of pounds to look after this bridge, I think, is really problematic. So actually, one of the ideas that, that we're put forward is, in the campaign is that if the bridge gets built, but only if, we can have a visitor centre on the top of Temple Station that would have the role of dispersing people to some of not only London's 3,000 parks and protected areas, but encourage people to visit the rest of the UK's parks and protected areas. Because at the moment, really, the Garden Bridge will serve itself. But if we could capture some of those 7 million people and inspire them to actually engage in other forms of natural heritage and built heritage, that would be a real achievement then. Um, but I think it's highly problematic. But the idea of the National Park City inspiring new forms of infrastructure, I think it's what it's completely about. But mostly through small-scale things. So hedgehog populations massively declined. What can we do to help with that? Well, use less pesticides is one thing, but also putting small holes on our fences. Swift populations plummeted massively. What can we do? Put holes in walls and buildings that are new or old. Really small-scale infrastructure, but can make a big difference to, to wildlife. So, you know, people talk about London being full. London is not full of people. We can have millions more people living in London, but we can also have billions more individuals that are also wildlife, from eels to birds, billions more. And that's what our aspirations should be. But the way we achieve that is, yeah, partially through these big flagship infrastructure projects, which inspire people. But it's far more about what individual people can do on their doorstep. Yeah, and what you were saying just then about small infrastructure just made me think back to your method of getting people to support the park is also very grassroots, you said. So so how does that work exactly? So in a traditional national park setting, we'd have to seek permission from Natural England. And the area of land would have to be great for wildlife. Actually, London really is. Um, it has to be great for outdoor recreation. London really is uh, great for that as well. But it also has to be countryside. London isn't really countryside, there's <laughs> bits of countryside. Um, so we're giving it its own definition, a national park city. It's a new kind of national park. It doesn't have to be designated because we've defined it for ourselves, we're making it for ourselves, which is a fun position to be in, um, although it has its challenges as well. So we, what we've decided is that to give ourselves legitimacy and to create um, a recognised national park city that's recognised by government, we're asking for not only the Mayor of London to, to declare their support for this, and Zach Goldsmith, one of the candidates for the Conservatives, has put money into the crowdfunding campaign to make the proposal. Sadiq Khan has fully backed the proposal. Sean Berry for the Greens um, has also come forward as well. So we expect other mayoral candidates to as well. So the mayoral candidate position is looking good. Then the other side is to recruit two-thirds of London's electoral wards. Because if two-thirds of councillors across the city and potentially a lot of their, you know, the people who go to ward forums and things, if they support it, and we've had conversations with 1,500 to 2,000 councillors to persuade them to be on side, then that's not only a fantastic mandate to create legitimacy for us to create this national park city, but it also 
furrows the ground to create just such a phenomenal level of understanding about what this project is about. So if Natural England turned around and said, we're going to make London a national park city, then how they persuade people and how they disseminate that, well, actually, they probably just couldn't. But the way that we're coming about by having literally hundreds of conversations from hundreds of members of the community asking their ward councillors to support this or asking organisations to support this, that's how we're creating a very strong base to work from. You know, and in terms of institutional memory, for years to come, it'll be exactly the same people in similar positions who'll be make dis making decisions around planning in the local area, or making decisions about green spaces in the local area. And they'll take inspiration from this. And by my last count, you had 45 wards supporting you already? 45 wards across 14 boroughs, which is 10% of our target in just over two months. And the first load of that was over the summer holiday period as well. So we're completely on track, which is That's very exciting. That's great. That's awesome. I just recently read about a quite a strange story about a fox hitman who's been hired privately by people to kill foxes in his local area. And I was just wondering if the National Park City happens, how would that work? Would you have to protect those foxes from initiatives like that? So, you know, the aims and purposes of the National Park City will be to protect, celebrate and enjoy life. Um, we don't have policies yet specifically on foxes because the organisation doesn't exist yet. Mm. But I'd argue that maybe the guy who's hunting down the foxes is a bigger pest than the <laughs> foxes themselves. I mean, what are the foxes doing wrong? The foxes are just being awesome at doing what they do, which is surviving in an urban environment, just like pigeons do. Um, and we should respect that. So I was at a ward forum meeting the other day and um, someone controversially was talking about a fox that had eaten a couple of local cats. I've got a cat, and that's quite sad. But if you think about the overall ecology of the city, think how many birds and small rodents are killed by cats. Think of the occasional fox as the occasional cat. It's probably a fair deal. So I think we should respect foxes, and we should hound the media that give them a bad name, because they're not cunning or sly. They're just wild animals being very good at what they do, and we should respect them and enjoy them. My heart skips a beat when I see a fox. I think they're wonderful. <laughs> And you have a campaign meeting next Wednesday. What do your campaign... Tuesday. Next Tuesday, yeah. sorry. <laughs> what do you hope to achieve with these campaign meetings? So up until now, all the campaign meetings have really been explaining the idea, consulting on the idea, bringing people on board to, for example, crowdfund the proposal. So nearly 400 people crowdfunded our proposal, which is printed on 50,000 newspapers that then went to all London MPs, all London ward councillors, and have been distributed to key people across the city, like by making sure that each one goes to it somewhere good rather than the paper being wasted and just handed out, you know, like the Metro on the Tube or something. Um, so the purpose of this campaign meeting now is, is about bringing together a group of people who really want to make this happen and help us to recruit um, both local wards so we can hit our target. We need 436 wards to declare their support, which is two-thirds of the 654 wards in London, but also to get organisations on board as well. Because actually what we're going to do is create a, a partnership to push forward this giant campaign for London. And for that to happen, we need big business, small business, community groups. We need everyone to be involved. And so the meeting is far more about how can we push forward the platform we've created and once we've got the legitimacy we need by recruiting all those wards, then we're going to have a very interesting conversation about the, the more specific nature of the organisation we create. And why do you think the time is particularly right for this kind of initiative? Why do you think it's received such a good reaction from people? I think that, that not everyone is receptive. Not only is there an awful lot of people who aren't going to parks, 
there's an awful lot who do, but not only is there an awful lot who don't use parks as much as they could do, but also then that there's a way in which people then look upon parks and green spaces as well. And I think that the challenge we have ahead of us is how do we get more children playing in parks? And how do we create a culture in which um, there's a great understanding of the value of a wilder park? And dare I say it as well, a wilder garden. So 24% of London is gardens. A third of those gardens are paved over. Okay, so a white picket fence and a lawn may be slightly better than concrete, but actually that rough garden that looks like it's not kept very well, that's great for bees and great for foxes, is probably the ideal. So there's an interesting thing here that, yes, we haven't had much resistance, and there's lots of politicians who like this idea, because the evidence increasingly shows that green infrastructure, engagement with nature, is good for our health, good for productivity, it's good for our enjoyment, it's good for the beauty of the city, it's good for all these things, which is why, to answer your question, I think it's going well. But the, the challenge is that actually there's an awful lot of people who we haven't spoken to as much as we could do yet, and what we want to do is change their minds. And that's not going to happen overnight. That's going to be generational. That's something that's going to happen incrementally over a number of generations. So what I liken it to is taking inspiration from rewilding up in Scotland. Very large areas of land should be deciduous woodland full of lynx, wolf, and not so many deer. As it is, because a small number of people want to go and shoot a large number of birds, we don't have as many birds of prey. We don't have the woodland we should do. And so the projects up there are looking at reforesting areas of Scotland. But it'll take a thousand years to get mature oak trees back to where they should be, to get that ecosystem back to where it should be. Now, the exciting thing about a city compared to a rural context is that in a rural national park, people visit, they leave, they try not to do any harm. In a city, we've got 3.8 million gardens, 8.6 million people. Every single one of those people an opportunity to create change and to make the city wilder, healthier, cleaner. But to get to that stage where everyone is thinking in the same way is going to take a few generations. It's not going to happen overnight. And that is, that's the scale of the ambition of this project. And just to go back to your time at SOAS, what, what did you study here and how do you think that SOAS helped you think up the National Park City? Well, I studied development studies and geography mm-hmm. when geography was still here. Geography is a really important subject because it sort of bridges and ties together a lot of otherwise potentially quite fragmented ideas. So I'm a keen geographer. I think that SOAS created a critical activist in me. Um, someone who is in- inspired and enraged by the world at the same time, but to think critically about what that means as well. So I, I came in as a very keen 18-year-old wanting to fix everything. So I was kind of beat that out of me, um, thinking through all the problems of all my ideals. But then through that came a very optimistic pragmatist um, in terms of knowing that we can create change, which needs to think very carefully about it. We need to listen to people very carefully when we want to create that change and to be patient with that change as well. And do you have any advice for current or past SOAS students or listeners who might be hoping to start a campaign like yours? I think, um, so I'm a guerrilla geographer and a big part of my inspiration is thinking about guerrilla activities wherever they may be, whether it's in street art or guerrilla gardening or even thinking about guerrilla warfare. In all, in all of these practices, quite often you can look at the tactics and techniques which are deployed and then apply them to whatever you're interested in. So very specifically, 
if you look at the work at Banksy, which many of us will know, nearly every single piece of artwork that he creates, he's taking something that looks like it should be in one place and takes it out of place to help us to reflect and think differently. So it might be putting flowers in the hand of someone who looks like they're going to riot or taking a poor person with no food and putting them to a wealthy person's house or whatever it might be. As a guerrilla geographer, I think we can take exactly the same ideas and bring them into the real world. So I did a project with a number of geographers during the George Bush II administration where they were saying, oh, you know, waterboarding, it's not torture, it's fine, you know, we're completely fine about it, it's a normal thing to do. So we went and held an international waterboarding championships outside the US Embassy, um, ironically next door to a sign that said no ball games. So it said no ball games, we weren't allowed to play football, but we were allowed to have an international waterboarding championship outside <laughs> the US. And all we were doing was taking this thing which was, was apparently, you know, um, publicly fine and okay, and putting it into a publicly and fine space to show how ridiculous that policy was. Um, we wore bibs like netball players, you know, took it very seriously. <laughs> um, it's a horrible experience. With the National Park, it's the same principle. It's about taking an idea and taking it out of place and putting it somewhere else and saying, right, well, does that create something better or something new? And that's why I believe so much in the National Park City, because I think that we can... People always talk about the countryside learning from cities. Well, do you know what? Maybe actually the city has a lot to learn from the countryside. How can a person listening to this podcast um, help the campaign if they wanted to? So nationalparkcity.london. Go to the website. Declare your support. If you're in London or you know someone in London or you've got any connection to London, email some ward councillors and ask them to support this. If you run a business or if you're the policy team of an organisation or a business, then get in contact, give us your logo, support us to help us get London made a national park. Then you can get involved and help us actually make the organisation itself. And if you've got money, then we want to create a giant endowment for this national park city as well. So very interested in that too. <laughs> and just if you didn't know, um, to contact your ward councillor, you can write to writetothem.com. It takes about a minute and a half and uh, you can just send your councillor an email, explain the idea to them and ask for them to declare their support. Yeah, on our website, we've got a template letter that you can just copy and paste across. So easy peasy. The, the next campaign meeting as well is next Tuesday. Yeah, at 6.30 in Farringdon. Well, thank you so, so much for coming into the studio, Dan. Thank you very much. This has been an interview with Daniel Raven-Ellison, a SOAS alumnus, who's campaigning to make London the world's first national park city. Thank you so much for listening.